The church is a big deal to God, and it needs to be a bigger deal to us. This fall, we're looking at the church. We've been calling our series of sermons Church Mechanics. We're popping the hood on the church. And this morning is week two of the topic, church leadership. Our plan is to work our way through chapter three this morning, but I would like to begin at the end, verse 16. There we're told, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, I'm from a family of all boys. My uncle had boys. My first child was a boy. You know him. I just figured that Adams' birth boys. I was sure that our second child would be a boy. But when the eagle had landed... And I started counting up appendages. I couldn't find that 11th toe. And it dawned on me, this is a girl. I was shocked. A little girl was certainly a change of pace for me. But boy, now I know I would have missed out on a whole lot of life had I not had a daughter. My boys are so predictable. I can anticipate how they're going to think. I know what's coming out of his mouth before he clears his throat. But my princess, she is always a surprise. She is an intriguing mystery. I never know what will make her laugh. She'd smile and giggle at strange things. I could only guess what was in the mind of a little girl. A daughter is a wonderful mystery. Her mystique spices up a dad's life. But a few years ago... It changed for me again. Daddy's princess once more surprised me. She brought home a boy. She said she wanted to marry. And again, I was shocked. What did I do wrong? What happened? I'm supposed to turn my little girl over to a boy whose only significant job up to that point had been feeding the neighbor's dog while they were away on vacation? Why would my daughter want to replace me with a pretend man? Once again, this was a mystery. And my wife was such a help. She sat me down and she explained, What Natalie sees in Jonathan is as mysterious as what I saw in you. So deal with it. (laughs) Today when I see him, I smile, but it still smarts. But when it finally sunk in that Natalie was serious about this marriage business, I got to tell you, I got serious about this so-called man. I spent a whole year quizzing this fella and checking him out. I left no stone unturned. I had a checklist longer than the Jiffy Lube. To care for my princess, this man would have to pass muster. And this is how Paul feels about the gospel and the church it births. Paul was as smitten with the church as I am with my daughter. Verse 9 mentions the mystery of the faith. Verse 16, the mystery of godliness. Godliness is full of mystery. The surprise of grace, the simplicity of faith, the mystical yet powerful reality of the new birth, they all combine to save us for eternity. This makes the gospel, the envy of the angels, this makes the church the darling of heaven. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. 
And Paul refuses to turn such mysteries over to just anybody. So what if a man sashays in and calls himself a pastor? God is as impressed with titles as I was when that boy I barely knew said he loved my daughter. Words and titles don't mean squat. To handle God's infallible word and to lead the blood-bought bride of Christ, a leader has to pass muster. And God, too, has an extremely exhaustive checklist for a church leader. It's about as long as the one promised by the Jiffy Lube technician. 1 Timothy chapter 3 is the 40-point inspection that God uses to measure up a leader. Now, we mentioned last week the qualifications for church leadership fall into three categories. There's giftedness and gender and then character. Paul discusses the subject of spiritual giftedness elsewhere. He tackles gender in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But above all, God's priority for a leader is character. In 1 Timothy 3, you'll notice there's little mention of talent. Skill makes you useful, but it doesn't qualify you to handle the gospel and lead the church. A flair for what you do is a plus, but it has to belong to folks that God can use over time. You see, in the long run, aptitude without character does more harm than good. Here is a huge problem that I see in the church today. Attenders are more impressed with ability than they are integrity. It's the entertaining personality. It's the clever presenter. It's the celebrity spokesman. This is the person who attracts the larger crowd than the faithful servant. We like pastors with bling. Righteousness is just not as sexy. And over and over we see this happen. A church overlooks a leader's indiscretions just because he fills the seats or because he's a gifted performer. And they pull all of, put all of Christianity at risk. Inevitably, it blows up, and souls get hurt in the wreckage. Churches today won't engage in characters. God insists on character. God is never pleased when a church sells its birthright for a bowl of talent. You see, through the centuries, Christians have argued over the proper structure for church government. In fact, these debates have spawned denominations. Here's our mistake. We're rigid when it comes to form while we're willing to make concessions on the qualifications. The New Testament does just the opposite. The structure stays flexible, but the caliber of men is never compromised. You can have the most biblical structure you want, but it's worthless unless the leaders are godly. You see, the church is the only ship that's sailing to heaven. The captain and crew need to be folks the passengers can trust with their lives. A man can look good under the stage lights, but is he the same person off duty when no one but God sees? A church leader should never be out of character. Well, 1 Timothy 3 begins. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, remember, in the New Testament, three terms are used to identify church leaders. Bishop, elder, and pastor. When you compare Scripture with Scripture, you'll find that these three terms are used interchangeably. In Acts 20 and in 1 Peter 5, they're all three applied to the same man. Elder speaks of a leader's age, or in Timothy's case, his maturity. 
Bishop, as we talked about last week, speaks, it means overseer. And so it describes what the man does, his ministry. Pastor or shepherd applies to his methods. He shepherds the flock of God. Whatever title you use, to serve in God's household is an honor and a joy. Of course, if you want a cushy job, don't be a pastor. It's long hours. The job is never finished. As a pastor or an elder, you're always on call. You live in a fishbowl, and often there's a cat staring at you. You see, leadership is work, but as Paul calls it, it's a good work. And we need men who aspire to lead, who know the job description and still rise to the challenge. And here's the cut of cloth the church is looking for in leaders. First up, a bishop then must be blameless. Notice, not sinless, but blameless. You know, we're all going to slip up in sin. And we're going to repent quickly and make amends and move on. But sometimes a leader isn't necessarily sinful. They're just reckless. They play fast and loose with appearances. Their conduct risks the church's reputation. A leader should avoid any kind of indiscretion that casts a questionable cloud. See, this Greek term translated blameless means nothing to take hold on. There should be no glaring issues on how I live that an outsider could point to and question the validity of what I preach. See, here's the litmus test for a leader. Are there current issues in my life that discredit the message I preach or the Savior I serve or the church I represent? There's a scene from a movie It's called Eight Men Out. It haunts me. In the Black Sox scandal of 1919, eight Chicago players, they they threw the World Series. The scene shows the great shoeless Joe Jackson. He's leaving a building. He's swarmed by all these reporters, and they're shouting, What did you do, Joe? Were you in on the fix? Suddenly, a little boy's voice rises above the din of the crowd. Oh, he's about 10 years old. Everyone else goes silent. This little boy, he looks up at his hero and he says, Say it ain't so, Joe. Say it ain't so. Joe turns and walks away in shame. Hey, I don't want to ever hear a little boy look up to me and say, Say it ain't so, Pastor Sandy. Once St. Francis was walking down the street and a young boy reached up out of the bushes and tugged on his coach. He said, Please, sir. Be as good as we think you are. Hey, we can and should warn folks not to put the pastor on a pedestal, but some will do it anyway. Why shouldn't people have leaders they can respect? Well, a bishop is also a husband of one wife. And this phrase gets hotly debated. One group says that this phrase bans polygamists from leading the church. That's probably a good idea. Who would want to put two women through being a pastor's wife? Uh, Other folks insist that the verse bars a widower or a bachelor from pastoral ministry. If that's the case, then Paul here is just probably disqualifying himself. Other interpretations eliminate men who've been divorced and remarried. I don't think any of those interpretations really get at the heart of the matter. A literal interpretation of this Greek phrase would be one woman man. Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest, he writes, we speak of the Airedale as a one-man dog. It is his nature to become attached to only one man. It's the bishop's nature to isolate and centralize his love toward one woman. 
You see, if a man has an eye for the ladies, if he's a flirt, then he shouldn't be a pastor. He's not a one-woman man. This phrase isn't as much about marital status as it is about moral stature. And here's the irony. A man can be married to the same woman for 40 years and not necessarily be a one-woman man. A fascination with pornography or wandering, roaming eyes can disqualify a man from ministry in God's eyes. Whereas a man who was divorced and remarried yet repented and has allowed God to renew his mind, this man now may have the integrity that he needs to lead. You see, here's how you need to view 1 Timothy chapter 3. You need to understand how to use this passage because God put it in your Bible for you to use. This is very, very practical. 1 Timothy chapter 3 is a checklist. It's for you to use. You observe how a leader lives. Then you pull out your Bible and you stack up his life to these verses. So, when a pastor out in Conyers comes out and says he's a homosexual and encourages you to forget that he's been divorced twice, and that he says God approves of his sexual orientation, then what do you do? You pull out 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you check the list. Wait a minute. It says right here in verse 2, husband of one wife. You don't even have to know Greek to figure out that unrepentant homosexual and husband of one wife are not compatible. That means that an unrepentant homosexual shouldn't be allowed to lead in the church Jesus died to save. But Pastor Sandy, that's so judgmental. And you're absolutely right. 1 Timothy chapter 3 is in your Bible for a reason. To arm you with discernment so that you can make these kinds of judgments. You know, like my daughter, the bride of Christ is too precious to just be turned over to anybody. The wrong people need to be weeded out of church leadership. No one is immune to biblical scrutiny. Hey, a church leader is never more important than the church he serves. A man's feelings are inconsequential compared to a church's reputation. God knows bad stuff is going to happen when people follow the wrong leaders. Well, Paul continues with his qualifications. He says the man must be temperate or self-controlled. You know, they say a boxer loses, once a boxer loses his temper, he loses the fight. He gets out of control. And the same is true with a leader. A leader can't be impulsive. He can't have knee-jerk reactions or half-baked plans. Godly leadership flows out of God's rest, not our restlessness. A good leader thinks and then he acts. He doesn't have a lot of poor decisions to undo In fact, sometimes the best decision is the decision you didn't make. Next in the list is sober-minded. This is the man who maintains his objectivity. He remembers that his perspective is not the only way to see a situation. I love this quote. I have a viewpoint. You have a viewpoint. But God has view. (laughs) Hey, God is the only person with 20-20 foresight. Wise leaders seek God's perspective. They maintain their objectivity. They realize they could be wrong. A leader should also be of good behavior. In other words, he's appropriate for the situation. When it's time to have fun, he has fun. When it's time to be serious, he gets serious. He's also hospitable. You see, a pastor or an elder needs to be friendly. He should be a big-hearted person. You know, leaders are people with expanding circles. 
They're not cliquish. They're not circling their wagons, trying to solidify their influence over their own tight-knit group. They're concerned with how new folks can be invited and how they can join in. Pastors and elders must also be, quote, able to teach. It doesn't mean necessarily that an elder is going to be a dynamic public speaker, but he does, does need the ability to unpack spiritual truths accurately. And in a way, folks can understand. If you need to go to heaven, he, he should be able to supply you directions. It's been said a good teacher puts the cookies on the bottom shelf so everybody can grab them. A church elder needs to be a good communicator. We're also told that he's not given to wine. Now verse 8 will tell us that the deacon is not given to much wine. But an elder is to be a teetotaler. You see, unlike a deacon, an elder is in a position of authority. He's a decision maker. And he can be called on at a moment's notice to render a judgment. We can't take the chance of his senses being dulled or his mind being foggy. How'd you like to call the elder one night and he'd be a little tipsy? Can't really talk to you because he's had too much to drink. Again, do you want the smell of alcohol on the breath of the man who's driving your daughter around town? I don't think so. And neither does God. This is why the elders shouldn't drink at all. And, you know, I can hear some complaints. Pastor Sandy, don't you know the New Testament teaches that a believer has the right to drink in moderation? Rights, did you say? Hey, hey we're talking about church leadership. You want to be an elder and you're worried about your rights? Get over it. This is leadership. Leaders forego their rights for the glory of God and for the good of others. That's what leadership's about. If one person stumbles because of a beer in my hand or a glass of wine on the table or sees me check out an R-rated movie, then shame on me. Church leaders should be as good as the people think we are. And then he says that they're not to be violent. In other words, a church leader shouldn't manipulate or push people around. He's not a spiritual bully. He leads by love and gentle persuasion. And neither should a pastor or elder be, quote, greedy for money. Once there was a little toddler, he was playing in the living room floor, and, and, and the little guy, he found a quarter in the carpet. And so as toddlers do, he stuck it in his mouth, started sucking on it, and accidentally swallowed the quarter. Well, the dad saw it, and he yelled to his wife in the other room, Quick, honey, call the pastor. She said, Don't you mean 911? Why would I call the pastor? The man answered, Because the pastor can get money out of anybody. <laughs> You know, it's sad when churches and pastors have gotten the reputation for being all about the money. This is why at Calvary 316, we don't pass the plate. We limit it to a box at the door. It's not that we don't need your mon monetary support. It's that you need to see us trusting the God we ask you to trust. He says, don't be violent and greedy. Instead, be gentle, not quarrelsome. I love the quote, a troublemaker is a guy who rocks the boat, then convinces everyone else there's a storm at sea. Some people are that way. They're argumentative, they're combative, and if you have that kind of a personality, it disqualifies you from the role of a pastor or elder. Then he says, don't be covetous. Envy shouldn't live in the heart of a spiritual leader. And, and you know, for me, it's not really as big a temptation to envy the neighbor's car or their house, or their salary, as it is for me to envy the neighboring pastor's growing church. 
and his large budget and his nice new facility. We all have to guard our hearts against envy. Jealousy can poison a pastor's ministry. Then verse 4 says that an elder should be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. You can be a good lawyer and be a bad husband. I'm not going to necessarily change physicians just because the doctor is a lousy dad. But you can't be a good pastor and blow it at home. A pastor or an elder has to rule his own house well. Does his wife and kids respect his authority? He can't rule over them if they don't respect him. And they won't respect him if he's not respectable. Sometimes people ask me, how's the church going? I say, well, my wife still comes. (laughs) After 30 years, that's no small statement. Years ago, it dawned on me that most church members are fickle. Did you know this? They'll leave one church at the drop of a hat, sometimes for the pettiest of reasons. And yet, at the end of the day, my wife and kids will still be my wife and kids. Church members will come and go. A pastor should never sacrifice his own family on the altar of ministry. A pastor needs to rule his own house well and have his kids in submission, but that doesn't mean that his kids will be perfect kids. I know you see Zach and you think that, but... You know, a pastor's kid is still a kid. He's going to pull some boneheaded stunts, just like your kids. See, it's not whether a pastor's kid is going to rebel or not. Hey, they're sinners, and sinners rebel. It's how the pastor or the elder responds in the wake of their rebellion. Does he address it wisely? Does he stand for truth and grace? And it's amazing how a man's management of his own home reflects how he'll manage God's household. I I like what Paul adds. He says, if a man does not know how to rule his own house, then how will he take care of the church of God? You know, I'm often struck by the similarities between a pastor and a parent. They're a lot, a lot alike. You have to love yet lead. You have to be firm yet feeling. Both call for an abundance of faith in God. Both require genuineness and humility. You know, the church really is nothing more than a big, large family. So why would we put a man in charge over God's family if he hasn't succeeded with his own family? Verse 6 continues, not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. You see, the devil has this snare, this trap that he uses on many, many leaders. And here's how it works. He fuels the man with pride. He puts him up on a pedestal, then he knocks the pedestal out from under him, and then he buries him in a mountain of guilt. And the person most vulnerable to this is the newbie, the novice. Give a new Christian too much too soon, and it inflates the gray matter. It's where it goes straight to the, to the frontal lobe. Baby Christians need time to grow up. Rush a man into ministry before he's ready, and you'll stun his growth, or worse, you'll wreck his faith. You know, this is why baseball players don't just jump from the amateur ranks to the major leagues. 
Because there's so many nuances to baseball that it takes time to master the game. There's A ball and then double A and then triple A. You bring a prospect along slowly. And the same is true with ministry. It too is laced with nuances that take time to understand. Don't be overly impressed by a new believer's talent and skill. It's only after they've learned to follow and to serve, then they can lead. And then verse 8, likewise deacons. Once a pastor and a deacon, they went deer hunting together. And, and when they arrived out at their usual spot, they noticed this no trespassing sign. The pastor suggested they try old man Jones's farm down the road. The deacon balked, no, man, that guy's a mean, ornery cuss. The pastor said, don't worry, I'll handle Jones. Well, the pastor went up to the door while the deacon stayed out in the truck. And surprisingly, Farmer Jones, he was happy to see him. He, he said, Pastor, I love your sermons. If, if you guys want to hunt, on my deer, uh, hunt deer on my property, you can do so anytime you want. The pastor was shocked. They turned to walk off, and, and that's when the farmer said, I do have one favor, though. I've got an old horse down by the barn who needs to be put out of his misery. But I just can't bring myself to do it. Pastor, could you shoot him on the way out to go deer hunting? So the pastor agreed. And as he walked back to his truck, he started thinking, you know, I can pull a joke on the deacon. And so he stomps back to the truck. He swings open the door. He grabs his shotgun off the rack. He shouts, how dare that man speak to me that way? He aims at the horse down by the barn. He goes, blam. Just about that time he hears, blam, blam. He turns around and there the deacon is with smoke coming out the end of the barrel of his shotgun. The deacon cries out, preacher. You got his horse and I got two of his cows. Let's get out of here. Oh, my. Elders and deacons, they make for an interesting, interesting combination. You know, elders look out for the spiritual needs of the flock, whereas deacons oversee the physical needs. The Greek word translated deacon means servant. Elder is a role of authority. Deacon is a post for service. This is why we call our deacons the designated doers. In Acts 14, the elders were chosen by Paul and the existing elders, while in Acts chapter 6, deacons were chosen by the congregation themselves. This is the model that we follow. Myself and the current elders pray and choose new elders while you, the church family, selects our deacons. And these decisions are crucial The trajectory of a church is determined by the vision of the people who lead it. Well, this is why verse 8 lists the qualifications for deacons. He says, likewise, deacons must be reverent or serious about the things of God. Yes, they handle practical issues, but they do it as a spiritual service. They're not double-tongued. In other words, they don't speak out of both sides of their mouth. Their word is their bond. A deacon delivers on what he promises. A deacon is not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. A deacon does nothing to diminish the beauty of God's church. He has faith and a clean conscience. And that's why Paul makes a statement about the deacons that apparently went without saying about the elders. He says, let these also first be tested. This is good wisdom. Leaders need to be watched and proven before appointed. You know, brother needs to show his mettle. Then let him serve as a deacon, being found blameless, Paul writes. Verse 11, 
likewise their wives. And here's an example of how versions of the Bible sometimes mix interpretation with translation. The Greek text literally reads, likewise the women. But the King James translators assumed Paul was speaking of the deacon's wife. He may have been, but... You see, there are other passages that suggest there was a female order of deacons within the church. Romans 16 verse 1 calls Phoebe a servant of the church. The word servant there literally means deacon. Our church in Stone Mountain, it has deaconesses, sisters who serve the needs of other women. They bring a feminine touch to the ministry. This is good for a church. I like what J. Vernon McGee observes on this passage. He suggests the reason women today are clamoring for roles in the church that have been reserved in the scripture for men is because they've been denied their own rightful role. And I think that's true. Now whether these verses speak of a deacon's wife or a deaconess, either way, we're told she must be reverent, not slanderers. Now, now the word slander literally is the word devil. Same word, slanderer, devil. Here it's in the feminine gender. Literally, it's she-devils. She shouldn't be a she-devil. And wow, can a she-devil do damage in a church. Just let her tongue run wild, and the carnage will run rampant. We need a zero tolerance toward gossip. When you see it flame up, I hope you'll be quick to douse it out. Well, these ladies should also be temperate, faithful in all things. Once there was a mom, she was having her morning devotions. The phone rang and her four-year-old daughter answered the phone. The mother overheard her little girl say, Can my mom call you back? She's having her emotions right now. Well, women in leadership need to keep their emotions in check. Paul reverts back to the deacons in verse 12. He says, Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. Again, if your Christianity doesn't work at home, don't export it. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Good deacons are men and women who have sweated on behalf of the saints. These servants end up loved and appreciated in the household of God. Now we're almost back to where we started. Why is God so choosy? With who gets to lead in the church? It's because the church is so strategic. Paul tells Timothy, verse 14, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Notice this. The church is God's family. It's his house. It's a living organism. It's the sole custodian of God's word and truth. The church is a big deal. And then he writes, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Godliness is like a beautiful, charming, mysterious woman. The Christian faith has this mystique that enchants us. It holds us in its web. It keeps luring us back. Nobody can figure it out. It requires faith. The more you get to know, the more you realize there is to know. As Pascal put it, I love God because I know him, but I adore him because I cannot comprehend him. 
In the final verses, Paul accents the gospel's mystique. God was manifested in the flesh. The ancient of days became a child of time. The infinite became an infant. The gospel begins with wonder. Jesus was justified in the spirit. He also worked wonders, but not with his own hand. His miracles were confirmation that God's spirit was upon him. And then he was seen by angels, Paul writes. Remember, at times, angels assisted Jesus. But what's more amazing is that for the 30-plus years that Jesus walked on this earth, every angel in the cosmos stopped in their tracks and gazed at his every move. He was seen by angels. And then Jesus was preached among the Gentiles. What an unexpected twist. You know, the Bible was written by Jews, for Jews, about Jews, with Jewish salvation in view. Yet immediately, the king of the Jews was preached among the Gentiles. And then, we're told, believed on in the world. Isn't it interesting? A man who never traveled more than 100 miles from his hometown is now Lord in every corner of the planet. And then was received up in glory. What began so inconspicuously in the backwoods town of Nazareth, in a Bethlehem stable, now crescendos in the clouds. God shows up in the womb of a virgin and goes up into glory from a Jerusalem hilltop. From arrival to ascension, great is the mystery. Years ago, my dad and I were out playing golf when a man about my dad's age joined us. The fellow asked dad, he said, what do your sons do for a living? (laughs) Dad replied, oh, they're both pastors. The man said, boy, I bet you're proud of them. And I'll never forget my dad's response. He he turned to the man and he said, so far. Hey, this is why character is like a Jiffy Lube inspection. It has to be checked and serviced regularly. For a character that goes unattended eventually breaks down. Great is the mystery of godliness. And godly must be the folks who guard it. Character does count. Let's pray for people to lead our church who pass inspection.